Bet you know someone who's a know-it-all. You know the type. They're arrogant, they act superior, and then they seem to rub that superiority in people's faces. Now, what if you manage that person and you want to help them get better? On this episode, three steps to help you and them improve. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 538. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Every leader deals with people who are difficult and deals with people that are either irrational or at least we perceive to be irrational. And specifically, we also all deal with people who are know-it-alls. How can we do a better job at helping them to behave? And more broadly, how can we do a better job at being able to handle the irrational situations and people that we run into? Today, I'm so glad to welcome back to the show someone who's absolutely an expert at this. It's going to help us to really navigate some of the more difficult situations so we can do a better job at serving people and serving our organizations. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show Mark Goulston, He is a founding member of the Newsweek Expert Forum and a Marshall Goldsmith MG100 coach. He works with founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs in dealing with and overcoming psychological and interpersonal obstacles to realizing their full potential. He is the co-author, along with Dr. Diana Hendel, of Why Cope When You Can Heal, How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD, and also Trauma to Triumph a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side, as well as being the author or co-author of seven additional books. He is the host of the My Wake Up Call podcast and is the co-creator and moderator of the multi-honored documentary Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. He was a UCLA professor of psychiatry for more than 20 years and is also a former FBI hostage negotiation trainer. One of his many books is titled Talking to Crazy, How to Deal with the Irrational and Impossible People in Your Life. Mark, it's been nine years, I think, since you were on the show last. I'm so glad we've kept in touch. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's great to be back. And right out of the gate, I want to give people a little bit of marketing 101. There's a term called mental real estate, and it was taught to me from someone in Orange County who was one of the original Imagineers, Tony Baxter. Huh. And what he shared with me was the term mental real estate. And I said, Tony, what is that? He said, it's when you come up with something that's familiar and then you twist it, you own more mental real estate. He said, for instance, Pirates of the Caribbean owns the word pirates in the minds of kids. Because when kids think of pirates, they think of Pirates of the Caribbean. So Disney owns pirates. And I was thinking of that because my book, Talking to Crazy, has a certain amount of mental real estate. When I told people I was going to write about that, and it wasn't about mental illness, it was about dealing with people that drive us crazy. Yeah. They all they all said, I need that book today. I need that book today. <laughs> so that had mental real estate. But I thought that was pretty good mental real estate. Yeah, yeah, it is. And actually, this leads right into the first thing I wanted to ask you is this word crazy. And that's not a word that sometimes is thought of as the most politically correct word. 
You're a psychiatrist, though, so I know you've given a lot of thought to using this word in the title. When you say crazy, what do you mean? You know, I got a lot of blowback, and I still have mixed feelings because I love my profession. I love the people who work in mental health. It's a it's a tough go, and the world needs it more than ever. And people would come to me in my profession, and they'd say, how can you use the word talking to crazy? We already have a stigma. How dare you do that? I said, did you read the book? They said, no. I said, it's really a book about how to deal with people who drive you crazy. The mm. people, the impossible, the irrational people in your life. It's not about mental illness. It's about how people drive you crazy. And the title actually will get people to hopefully read the book because the book is really about empathizing with them so that you can disarm the way they're being difficult with you. Indeed. And as I think about the book and the advice you give, and also the point you make that we all can be irrational, right? It's easy to look at the other person and say, okay, this person's being really irrational in this situation or is irrational often. And yet, of course, we all step into that. And I, I love the example you give in the book about someone giving you advice a long time ago about what to do if a dog sinks its teeth into your hand. Would you share that? Yeah. If a dog sinks its teeth into your hand and you try to pull your hand out, it will sink its teeth deeper. But if instead you push your hand into the dog's mouth, it will start to choke and gag and it will let go, which leads me to a little anecdote that at the beginning of the book that people found fascinating. Can I share that one? That was when I had a a little incident with road rage. Sure, please. So I was having, and it's a little bit like pushing your hand into the dog's mouth. So I was having one of those days where everything I did backfired. I mean, I couldn't do anything right. And I'm driving uh, in Southern California. And you know, probably uh, was like, that's your first it. mistake. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a mistake. That's right. So I'm driving, uh, from actually the west side of Los Angeles into the San Fernando Valley. You probably know that stretch of road. Oh, yeah. And uh, and it's too crowded on the highway there called the 405. So I'm taking a parallel road called Sepulveda Boulevard. So I'm, I had a terrible day. And as I'm driving, I cut off someone in a pickup truck with his wife. And he honks a horn and I just sort of wave. And then I cut him off again. Oh, no, because I'm just so out of it. And he pulls up, he pulls up in front of me and he stops and I'm so out of it. I just stop behind him. And this big six foot six, probably, you know, just this strong surfer dude guy. He comes out and uh, before he comes out, I can see his wife is telling him not to get out of the car. And I'm just staring at them because I'm having a terrible day. And so finally, he gets out of the car, he comes over and he bangs on my window. And I must not have been rational, but I must have pretty good instincts. And I lower the window. I mean, who would lower a window to someone who's banging on your window? And he says to me, you cut me off twice. You know, nobody cuts me off and you cut me off twice. You know, I'm going to show you never to cut me off again. And then I look at him and I said, do you ever have one of those days where everything you do backfires? I mean, everything. 
and you're hoping to run into the person who will put you out of your misery. Are you the guy? Huh? He said, what? I said, yeah, I don't cut people off in traffic. I don't cut people off in traffic twice. I, I'm just having the worst day and nothing's going right. And are you the guy who's going to put me out of my misery? At which point he says, calm down. I said, you calm down. I don't cut people off in traffic and I don't do it twice. You know, you haven't had my day. He's, and then he starts reassuring me. It's going to be okay. Just calm yourself down. Well, that's easy for you to say. You didn't, you didn't mess up everything uh, you did today. I mean, look at what I've done. He said, really, really take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. You know, and then he walks back to his car and he looks in the rearview mirror and he waves to me as if to say, it's going to be okay. And then they drive off. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> it's just like what you said with the dog too, right? I mean, the, the dog, if it bites down, it expects you to pull back. And you did the opposite in that situation of what he would have probably expected you to do. Absolutely. I, I, I invited him. I said, put me out of my misery already. You know, you, you know, come on, let's get on with this. And and that just that just totally disarmed him. You know, this is this actually leads right into one of the key points that you make in the book. And there's so many different situations, by the way, you cover. But one of them is one that when I was reading through it, I was thinking, this is a situation so many of us have been in as leaders or maybe are now which is how to handle someone who's a know-it-all and is causing a bit of frustration in the organization. And one of the things that you say about know-it-alls is that they're actually irrational. And I'm curious what it is about someone who's a know-it-all that makes them irrational. Well, the irrational means that they're not reacting, they're overreacting or reacting in a way that doesn't make sense, especially if they know something. And so frequently, the reason know-it-alls come off as know-it-alls is they want to trigger other people to be on the defensive. Because if you can push someone to be on the defensive, they're not going to drill down to see that maybe you're not a know-it-all. But think of it this way, here's a know-it-all and they're venting you. Now, one of the things that I that we teach in the book is make a list of all the difficult people in your life, professional and personal. And, and those are the people where just the sound of their name, just a text message, just a voicemail, just anything, you get a knot in your stomach. So identify that know-it-all. And so the next time you have a conversation and they start acting from that part of their personality, they're expecting it to somehow agitate you or upset you because uh, they know that if you're off balance, it's easier to take advantage of you. And so they act for a while and don't interrupt them and let them say whatever they're saying. Pause for two seconds. And the pausing communicates to them that whatever they did didn't work. And this is what you say to them. And please hear me out because you're not going to like what I'm about to say. Because the last thing you want to do is give them a compliment or butter them up hmm. because they make you feel so awful. So you pause and that's going to cause them to think, you know, you're thinking something else. In fact, they might say, well, what, like, what are you thinking? And you look at them and you say, do you know how smart you are? And they're going to go, what? 
They're not expecting that. Because huh? they, yeah, do you know how smart you are? And then try to point out something specific because a number of these know-it-alls are actually quite smart in some area. And, and you point out in this area, when you're doing these things, you are smart flirting with brilliant. And they're not going to know what to do with that. Hmm. And then you can say, can I offer you a suggestion? And they're disarmed. You could say, when you're demonstrating or talking about an area that you're smart, verging on brilliant, you might want to avoid doing anything that distracts people from realizing and seeing your smartness and your brilliance. I mean, your smartness and your brilliance deserves to be seen and appreciated. And, and I'm going to share something with you, which you may or may not be aware of. Every time we talk to another person, we actually trigger flashbacks in them. We remind them of other people, you know, and we have no idea who we're reminding them of. And sometimes when you talk, you run the risk. And I've seen it, the reaction in me. I've seen the reaction in other people. You might re remind other people of their arrogant older brother or their arrogant dad or their know-it-all such and such. And what happens is you trigger in them the need to work around their reaction. And when you do that, they're going to miss out on what you're smart and brilliant about. Uh, now, I wouldn't tell you this if you weren't smart, verging on brilliant. If you weren't smart, verging on brilliant, I'd probably say, you know, keep trying to bully people because they may discover that you're not really that smart or brilliant, but you are. Hmm. It's going to totally confuse them. Yeah, and it's it's the opposite of what they expect. And I'm thinking about the analogy used in the book about dealing with people like this, that it's almost like they enjoy playing a game of tag. And so you're you're changing the game a bit. Could you share a bit about that? Well, often what happens is they learned this from some some other place. Maybe they grew up in a household in which uh, one of their parents was a bully, bullied the other one. And they watched this and they observed this and they said to themselves, well, gee, the choice is to be the one who's bullied or to be the bully. And they, there may have been an over-identification with the bully because they didn't want to be the victim. And so what happened is they, uh, they learned that from something that they observed. And that's what they're practicing in their adult life. I'll tell you, I've been recent, I was recently brought in to work with a know-it-all in a law firm. And he's not only a know-it-all, he can be condescending, he can be arrogant. And something I said to him is, have you ever heard of Michelangelo? And he said, what? What do you mean? I said, well, Michelangelo was a painter, sculptor, sculptor, did the Sistine Chapel, and he did this thing called the Statue of David. And when people asked him about the statue of David, he said, I saw the statue in the block of marble, and I just chipped away everything that wasn't David. Mm. And I'm bringing that up because there is a place inside you that people could come to respect as opposed to fear. Ah. You know, if you want to get great results, and you become someone that people used to fear, and you now become someone who they respect, you have no idea the results you're going to get. And I'm going to tell you one of the most unfair 
uh, facts in life about nice people versus not so nice people. The world will root more for a not nice person who becomes nice than someone who's been nice all along. So true. So true. (laughs) And the reason being is that when a not so nice person somehow cleans up their act, the fear and loathing that people feel towards that person goes away. And when you can walk into an office or a building and you don't have to be afraid or really angry at someone because they frighten you, you know, the feeling of relief you feel, it's you can exhale. It's like ecstasy. And I say, you have an opportunity that nice people don't have. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. You may remember I worked for Dale Carnegie for many years, and as an instructor, I would often have classes teaching human relations skills. And inevitably, we'd always have one or two people in every class who came in with a bit of a chip on their shoulder, or they were uh, a know-it-all or a difficult person in some way. And when that person would turn the corner, it was really remarkable how the entire class would rally around that person and encourage them and cheer for them. And it was unbelievable, the difference that the person who came in who already was practicing some of those principles didn't necessarily get that kind of encouragement. So it's fascinating thinking about that through the context of what would be a reason someone would want to be able to change their behavior too. Absolutely. And it's just human nature. And I think what it is, is that when you are someone who triggers either fear or anger in other people, it's really stressful to come to work thinking you're going to run into someone who's going to trigger fear or anger in you. And when they don't have to have that fear anymore, uh, that's, I think, one of the reasons why people root for them. How often does this work, Mark, when you were really able to take that step back to identify where a person's smart, to lead with that, and then to talk about where those actions may be self-defeating. What do you see happen? How often do people then do something that actually is meaningful in behavior change? Well, it's interesting because now at this stage of my life, uh, I'm often brought in to not deal with making the nice people nicer. I'm here to bring, uh, because they have someone that they want to save, who's productive, who really contributes but they're, they're putting the company and organization at risk because of this behavior. And one of my uh, criteria, and it's a deal breaker, and I tell the person bringing me in, sometimes it's the HR director, sometimes it's a partner. I'll say, I'm not going to work with someone who is dyed in the wool through and through a difficult person because they take delight in hurting other people. And And the reason I won't work with them, and I mentioned this earlier, is because I only work with people that I can root for or come to root for if I teach them a better way of being in the world. Whereas if this person acts this way because they just don't know any better and people who know them will say, you know, they actually act this way when they're feeling a little threatened. They're actually not awful people, but as soon as they feel threatened or someone's going to question them, out comes the awful part of their personality. Well, you know, then I may work with those people. But I think that's, that's the criteria. Someone who delights in running over people and making other people feel worse, I'm not very successful with because they don't want to change because yeah. they're actually enjoying it, you know, for some maleficent delight that they're taking from it. 
But it's really interesting because I've developed a coaching practice now because as I get older, I feel leadership in the world really needs some help. As I look around, it seems like we need better leaders because of what we're going through. And now uh, I won't work with a uh, someone unless they want to grow into someone who people trust, have confidence in, feel safe with, and respect. Trust, have confidence, feel safe with, and respect. And it's interesting. I mentioned something uh, before we went on that I was fortunate to have eight mentors. They've all passed away. Uh, the last one was Larry King. I went to breakfast with him almost every day before COVID. I was part of this quirky breakfast group. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, we used to meet uh, in Beverly Hills, and it had been going on for 21 years, and I was the last full member. Full member just meant that once a week, I paid. <laughs> One day a week, we all took, <laughs> uh, took turns. But, you know, I watched Larry, and uh, just a, a charming, quirky, funny guy. And then before him, uh, my last mentor was Warren Bennis. Oh, yeah. And, and one of the things that Warren especially had is getting esteem from someone you respect. And maybe this is just my personal thing. But for me, there's almost no better feeling than getting esteem from someone you deeply respect. So in fact, when I think of my mentors, I would never tell them I was going to do something unless I was 150% sure I was going to do it because I wouldn't want the risk of their looking at me like, like I was flaky because I didn't want uh, them to be disappointed in me. Now, I'm a little weird that way because I'm just human. And in reality, they wouldn't have been disappointed in me because they're human also. But what I'm saying is I coach people to be someone, I coach leaders to be someone who engenders in others trust, confidence, a sense of safety, and respect, because if you can become that kind of leader, people just feel it's an honor to be in your company. I so appreciate you making that distinction. And as I think of and reflect on many of the situations, not all of them, but many of the situations over the years where someone has been dealing with a know-it-all or some other irrational person, oftentimes it is the case that that person intends well, they're a good employee overall, but they have those moments where they behave really poorly. And they may realize it a bit, they may not. And a little bit of effort and coming at it from a from a different way can really make a big difference. And it maps back exactly to what you taught us about it's not really when you are giving them a compliment, when you're when you're talking to them about what it is they do well and where their genius is. It's not really flattery because flattery is insincere. And my guess is, is that a smart know-it-all person is going to see through flattery. So part of the key here is that you're zeroing in on something that truly, genuinely, you can look that person in the eye, you can think about it through the context of your mentors and say, hey, you know, I can say this legitimately, proudly, that, that you have this skill and this talent. And if you want to be able to leverage it better, Here's what you can do to change your behavior so that 
you're not getting in your own way. And I, and I just love the way you frame that in that there's a there's a combination there of genuine human care and also directness to help them to see how their actions can be self-defeating. Absolutely. In fact, there's a book I'm going to recommend, which your, your listeners have probably heard of because it's a great bestseller currently. And it's called What Happened to You? And it's by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. And what it talks about is trauma-informed care. And I remember some years ago, Oprah did a report on 60 Minutes on this program that Dr. Bruce Perry uh, runs. I think it's in uh, Michigan or Wisconsin. And in 60 Minutes Overtime, a reporter asked Oprah about that story. And and Oprah said it was the most life-changing story she'd done in her career. That's pretty amazing for Oprah Winfrey to say. Yeah. And the reporter asked her why, why and what she learned, and you'll find out about it in What Happened to You, is she said the way they help people is they realize almost everyone's been traumatized. And when you look at someone's behavior, even in know-it-alls, something has happened to them that caused them to act this way. Now, now realize one of my one of my philosophies in life that I learned from someone who uh, had just the most positive attitude towards life. I assume goodwill and innocence of everyone until I can't, because you know there's very few eat, truly, truly died in the wool evil people that we run into. Yes, they are in the world, but most of us don't really run into them. What we run into are people who are flawed, just like you, just like me. And if you can realize that you're dealing with someone who's flawed, even Mr. or Ms. Know-it-all, you know, then that allows you to ask the question, if you can get into a dialogue, what happened to you that you have grown up to have this know-it-all persona, which distracts from how smart and brilliant you are, but you're able to say it? It's interesting how much really does come back to empathy in our work both as leaders and as human beings, right? And uh, it doesn't excuse bad behavior, of course, knowing where, why a person's made some of the choices they've had and, and the past. Uh, but it, it often helps us to enter into conversations and support people with more heart and, and, and to be able then to cheer for them, like you said earlier, you know, when they do, are able then to make that change and turn the corner, uh, it, it really is huge. I have one more question for you, Mark. I often ask people what they've changed their mind on. You have been at this work for many years. You've written tons of best-selling books. You've worked with some of the biggest names out there and helping leaders to be effective. As you reflect on the last couple of years, I'm curious, what have you changed your mind on? Well, as I mentioned, uh, I look pretty good for a guy in his early 70s, and I miss all my mentors. I just felt blessed that they gave me their precious gift of their time. And I remember Warren Bennis, uh, before he died, he shared with me because we just had special conversations, my mentors and me. And he shared with me, he said, you know, Mark, I'm trying to be a good sport. Uh, And they parade me around the business school at USC. And I'm irrelevant. You know, they point out that I wrote all these books on leadership and the MBAs look up at me and they smile politely and they go back to their work. And he said, I got to be relevant into my 80s 
And it kind of hurts to be irrelevant when the world has sort of seen you as some, some so-called fault leader. And I could feel the, his pain, and I thought, I want to stay relevant. Now, some people will say, why do you have to be relevant? Why don't you just you know, be a good grandpa and a good, uh, a good husband and a good brother and all those? And all those are most of my time now. And those are probably the most important thing. But there is still that part of me that wants to stay relevant. And so what I learned, and if you're someone who's over 65, uh, one of the ways to stay relevant is to be totally focused on younger generations that can change the world for the better. And I and identify those select people who are the ones who can do it and do everything you can in your power to help them to change the world for the better. Mark Goulston is the author of Talking to Crazy, How to Deal with the Irrational and Impossible People in Your Life. Mark, so grateful for your work. Thanks for your time. Thank you. If this conversation struck a chord with you, several other episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 91, How to Listen When Someone is Venting. That's the last time Mark was on the show. We talked about the situation when someone is coming at you with a ton of anger. If you're in a kind of a role or in a kind of organization where that happens more often than you'd like, episode 91, a three-step process for how to diffuse a tough situation. And speaking of that, there's so many of these situations in Mark's book that if you do find yourself in a place where you're handling a lot of irrational behavior, difficult situations on a regular basis in your role, certainly recommend it. It's a wonderful manual for all kinds of different ways, and the steps are very straightforward and practical to help you to diffuse situations more effectively. Anyway, episode 91 for more details on when someone's venting. I'd also recommend a very closely related topic, episode 290, how to manage abrasive leaders. Uh, sometimes the know-it-alls, as we talked about in this conversation, can be abrasive. Uh, episode 290, we talked with Sharon Bar-David on when you find yourself in a situation where you're managing someone who themselves is not behaving well and managing their team in a way that's a bit abrasive, how do you diffuse that? A good compliment to this conversation. Again, that's episode 290. And then finally, as we talked about in this conversation, uh, there's sometimes when it's us, right? We're the ones that are causing the trouble, and we certainly all can do that, depending on having you know the situation or the bad day or whatever. Uh, episode 528 also recommended, where you may be provoking anxiety. Erica Dewan was my guest on that episode, and we talked about how to notice when it's you that potentially is doing that in your communications and also some good practices to limit that a bit. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you set up your free membership, you'll be able to search the entire library by topic. And two areas that this episode's going to be filed under, one of them is influence. The other one is difficult situations. We've had so many conversations on the show over the years in both of these areas. How do we do a better job with our human relation skills? And also, when we do get into tough situations, which we all do as leaders, how do we help resolve those situations in a way that's genuine, but also in a way that really does help people to move forward as quickly as possible? All the details for that inside of the library. If you haven't set up your free membership, 
go over to coachingforleaders.com that'll give you access to the entire library, plus all of the free audio courses, the member casts, my own personal library, and also the interview notes and highlights from many of the books featured on the show, including Mark's book. I've uh, detailed out my interview notes, many of the highlights I made about this section of the book in particular. You can download those once you have your free membership set up. Coachingforleaders.com is where to get that set up, and it'll also give you access to the weekly leadership guide that comes every week with details on all of the episode notes, plus all of the resources I found for you during the week that I think will support you in taking the next step. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll look forward to seeing you back next Monday. Take care.